I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest, the Spider-Verse Proliferates Edition. It's Wednesday, June 7th, 2023. On today's show, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. It's the sequel to Into the Spider-Verse, the wild bebop variation on the Spider-Man canon. It's about a Brooklyn kid somewhere in the multiverse who is not Peter Parker, but is Spider-Man. This is a sequel. Of course, it made buckets of money this past weekend. And then Rose Byrne and Seth Rogen star in Platonic, a sitcom on Apple TV about two not-same-sex buddies reuniting in midlife. And finally, we discuss the huge hit video game, The Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom, with Slate's own Luke Winky. Joining me today is Julia Turner of the LA Times. Hey, Julia. Hello, hello. And of course, Dana Stevens, the film critic of Slate.com. Hey, Dana. Good morning, Stephen. Uh, Should we make a show? Let's do it. All right. Well, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse is the sequel to Into the Spider-Verse. We're about a year after the action of that first film with Gwen, voiced by Haley Steinfeld, and Miles, voiced by Shamik Moore, back in their respective universes. When worlds begin to interpenetrate wildly as they do in kind of string-theorized world-building IP, uh, in this instance, thanks in part to a secret spider society that polices uh, action between the disparate realms of reality, much exquisite mayhem ensues. The film also stars Yorma Takone and Oscar Isaac. In the clip we're about to hear, Miles is uh, in a meeting with his parents and a teacher to go over his grades in the early parts of a college admissions uh, process. Let's have a listen. Miles' grades are pretty good. A in AP Physics. That's my little man. And AP Studio Art. (laughs) He takes after his uncle. A minus in English. She's a tough grader. And a B in Spanish. What? Ooh, okay. Miles. Are you trying to kill your mother? Calmate, mommy. Eso no es my fault. ¿Qué es eso que esto no es my fault? Tú estás tomando una clase en Spanish. I just missed a few classes. Oh, just a few classes. Well, what's a few? I mean, you know, like five. Five? Five? Actually six. You're dead. You're dead. Uh, all right, Dana, let's start with you. That gives a nice flavor of the early parts of the film, at least. What uh, would you make of this? It made, I, I think I said up tippy top, it made tons of tons of money. It's a big hit already. What do you think of it? I mean, I, I really hate in a way that you're asking me first, because I think I'm going to be the least enthusiastic of the three of us about it. But that said, it is, what would the word be? kind of hypnotic, like the first, you know, like the first movie from 2018, it is, um, it's extremely original in its visual style. And that never gets tiring. The beauty of this movie remains vibrant all the way through. Whether it needs to be two hours and 20 minutes long, and whether it needs to end on a cliffhanger, promising another Spider-Man, Spider-Verse movie in some unspecified number of years, is another question. And I couldn't help feeling a little bit as if I was being, uh, to use a web metaphor, as if I was being sort of caught into a content web, in in spite of the originality and beauty and sincerity and humor and, you know, great performances and just so many things that this movie gets right and does in its own original way. I still couldn't help but feel as if I was being fed content that was going to be doled out in in more um, future installments. 
And I do think I, I'm just feeling a resentment toward the entire Marvel industrial complex, even at its in its upper echelons, of which this is definitely an example, right? I mean, it has Chris Miller and Philip Lord, the the pair, the animating pair behind um, the Lego movie, among other things. And it has that kind of wit and visual snap and humor and great cameos from actors. And it is very fun moment to moment and very fun to watch with a big audience with kids who are enjoying it for sure. But I'm not quite sure in the case of either of these two movies that I get into the rhapsodic accolades that some others do. But please shut me up with some rhapsodic accolades. Um, Julia, this is in what Dana says is is in, I would say, pointed contrast to the first one, a shorter movie, totally unexpected, wildly original. It didn't feel like a cynical exploitation of IP, really, to I think anybody. It was a celebration of comic books, on and on and on and on. But not this one, according to Dana. What about to you? I mean, just the absolute visual originality of the storytelling. And I guess it's both original and, you know, deeply elusive and referential in that it's pulling from varieties of comic books, varieties of art history, varieties of animation styles. Um, I will forgive this movie a lot because of how fascinating and beautiful and fun it is to watch. Uh, it's two hours and 19 minutes and it's, um, you feel it. And when it, you know, it was, I think originally called across the spider verse part one, which may give you a suggestion as to how the film ends, which may be shaping part of our response to it. I think it does shape mine a bit. Um, but I really loved it. I mean, in addition to all of the visual gorgeousness of it the thing i admire about it is how grounded it is in its human relationships which feel both dimensional and like the point and i also think the film is doing really fun things it perhaps it's possible to find them to be a little bit too glib and clever but it is at once a you know gigantic expression of comic book pop culture but it's pretty critical of some of the dark currents in comic book pop culture and without spoiling too much of it it sort of sets up um kind of obsessive fanboy desires to adhere to canon or the way things always were as uh perhaps something to be concerned about and and something that can be calcifying and trapping and anti-human which is like a pretty interesting set of points for a movie based on mm-hmm. comic book IP to be making. Um, and then I think it's really just like a beautiful movie about love and families and self-confidence. And it, it sort of uses the fact of the multiverse it's describing um, as a way to tell a human story as opposed to populating various multiverses with thin shadows of humans in order to get us to watch explosions. Yeah. And, you know, the the history of Spider-Man and Marvel and how the Spider-Man movies came to be made by Sony and not Marvel and how that all is getting reconciled over time is a, is a long story, probably not for this show, but you can feel the differential DNA here, I think. 
I would agree with that. I mean, I don't at all mean to say, oh, this is just more of the same and I'm sick of the same old thing. This is a definitely a fresh twist on the same old thing. And I think if that is your thing, this could be a really exciting exploration. Mm-hmm. of. But to me, I guess I just feel like even the hero's journey, like, great, you're questioning the hero's journey. But what about those of us who have already been over the hero's journey mm-hmm. for a long time? Yeah, for a long time. Well, I, I want to just say, I think I agree with every word both of you said, and now I have to try to reconcile how that's possible. I mean, the visual creativity, and I agree with Julia, the the, the basic credible humanity of these characters, I think goes beyond, well beyond anything they've been able to do in a live action format. I loved the first one for being uncynical and relatively brief by the standards of this. Here's where I agree with both of you. I loved this movie almost unreservedly for about an hour and 20 minutes, an hour and a half. It is too long and overstuffed. And the cynicism, I'm afraid, did leak into this picture despite its real, real virtues. And then it becomes the kind of careening, frenetic, somewhat directionless, non-film film that Marvel movies are. When they expand out, the fight sequences are eternal. They go on and on and on. They're quite boring. You get lost in space and the plot disappears and the human drama disappears for way too long at a time. And then I didn't know it was part one. And so it begins to recohere again because it knows it has to leave you. It needs something as old fashioned as plot to get you to the cliff off of which to hang that forces you to come back into the theater. And they're very deft at that. And they do. They recohere the characters and the plot and the arc. And suddenly I was back in it again. And But I was like, how the fuck are they going to wrap this up in the next 30 seconds? Ah, oh, fuck you. Right? I the, the groan in that theater when to be continued, like, I don't think very many people in that theater knew it was coming. And they were like, what the... Yeah, there were audible come-ons. Yeah, come on. It was like... And it's a real to be continued. It's not sort of like, oh, there's more to be mined from these characters and story. It's like a suspenseful arc is chopped off (laughs) so that everybody can pay 18 more dollars in three years. And that just feels... I guess I guess if you were really, really in it, that would feel like a fun challenge or something. But again, I just felt a little bit IP milked at the end. And I think some of the kids in the theater where I saw it felt the same. Well, here's here's one way that I would look at it, because ironically, this movie, which is maybe one of my favorite I've seen in the last 18 months, mm-hmm. had the ending absolutely completely in common with my most abjectly hated (laughs) film we've seen in the last 18 months, which was Avatar 2, colon, The Way of Water, part one, or whatever the heck it was, which had an extremely similar, like, the whole movie with its stupid seaweed bikinis was just, like, getting everybody ready to have the fight. (laughs) It's like, come, like, what? So... It's somehow being pulled out of this like incredibly beautiful, sensitive, soulful, stylish, inventive, non-sexist, non-ogling, non-13-year-old boy, like very wise, um, like emotionally smart and gorgeous universe, like totally different viewing experience. Mm. And then to womp have the same ending. I was like, ugh. But I think... Like, I think probably what's going on there, just this is a guess, but I think it's similar, which is that both sets of creators on these two films are doing something really, really technically difficult with their storytelling. Mm -hmm. And 
feel like, hey, what even is a movie versus an episode versus a t- like all these movies now are basically episodes in one gigantic unending TV show. And like, I'm here trying to make my, you know, beautiful, gorgeous painterly, you know, Gwen is feeling an emotion. And so suddenly the whole sc- scene is like throbbing in this emotive purple and g- gorgeously and or like I must perfectly, you know, retouch the seaweed frond on this blue fish tween's boob, whatever it is that you're doing in the like deep art animation studio, you're like, this is so gorgeous. Everyone needs more of it. And I'm just going to keep unfurling it. And who cares about what the classic satisfying arc of like sitting in a movie theater for 90 to 180 minutes is like, I, you know, it just seems, um, it seems like maybe when you're trying to make something heavily effects based or animated, and you're trying to make it unusually gorgeous, you just kind of get a little lost or something, and you know you've got another one coming. Like, you just aren't thinking that the audience cares whether it has all the usual beats of a satisfying experience, because it's everything's mushed together. Like, why not watch a TV show, one episode of a TV show in a movie theater this year and watch the next episode in three years? Like, I guess. It just felt deflating. Yeah, really deflating. I mean, first of all, let me just say up front that Seaweed bikini abject hating Julia Turner is the best Julia Turner. Your your hatred. <laughs> I will start a whole side podcast that's just like a frame by frame takedown of that. Like I actually, guys, this is my last show. <laughs> Welcome to Avatar Two: The Julia Verse. I I the paywall. Yeah, um, Dana, I'm going to give you a shot here. Because I know you must have admired things about this movie, like Oscar Isaac. There are all these great performances and characters. You admired things about this movie, yes? So one of the positive things I'll say about this movie is that I, I agree with its reception. I'm happy that it's been joyously received and that kids are going back to see it twice. And in that sense, I, I have nothing but but good things to say about Across the Spider-Verse. It may not be my particular thing, but I honestly don't think for the most part it is made um, in, a, in a vein of cynicism. Um, Julia's already spoken to the visual beauty and the, the palette and all of that. I mean, the, the playfulness with imagery is incredible. If you know something about comic book history more than I do, it's even more so, you know, from, you know, the, the sort of... Um, tiny dots on the characters' faces as if they were printed from an old-fashioned dot printer to, you know, the styles changing when they flip into different universes. And then the voice work. We haven't talked about all the cameos Mm -hmm. and the great voices that appear. And the reason I sat through the credits was because I wanted to hear if the people that I thought were doing voices were doing voices. And one of the big mysteries to me was who is Spider-Punk, who is this new character who appears, who's basically animated like the illustration on a Sex Pistols cover. Mm -hmm. He's sort of like a a moving version (laughs) of that, you know, very, very Malcolm McLaren styled dude. Um, And it was Daniel Kaluuya, who you never get to hear talk in his native British accent, right? I mean, most of the big roles we know him for, he's playing an American. So I didn't guess it was his voice, but he's incredible. Oscar Isaac is very funny. Um, There's just tons of of playfulness in every corner. And, uh, And so in spite of the fact that I, by the two hour and 20 minute mark was saying enough trippy, psychedelic action montages. I cannot watch one more (laughs) moment of people hurtling through rainbow-colored portals. Uh, I was still delighted by the voice work and the the, just the joy that everyone seemed to bring to it. Like, nobody behind the mic doing their voice. Jason Schwartzman as this very inventive villain who's sort of like a walking black hole. Nobody seemed to be just phoning it in behind the mic. Everyone was having fun. All right. It's Across the Spider-Verse. 
Uh, it's in movie theaters. It's at a multiplex playing every 30 seconds. Go check it out. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on all your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend. Hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find Life and Art from FD Weekend wherever you listen. All right, before we go any further, this is typically where we discuss business. Dana, what, uh, what do we have this week? Steve, we have two items of business this week. Exciting suspense after the first to find out what the second one is. First of all, it is time now that it's June. This is our first show recorded in June, I believe. Time to start planning for our annual summer strut episode. For listeners who might be new to the show and not know this, every summer we ask listeners to send us some of their favorite catchy, upbeat songs, the kind of songs that set you strutting down the sidewalk in the summer. We compile a playlist of them, we choose our favorites, and we bring on Slate's great pop critic and chartologist Chris Malanfi to talk about the songs with us. So if you want to contribute to the Summer Strut playlist this year, please email us your links at culturefest at slate.com. Send us the name of the song and the artist. Better yet, you could send a Spotify link directly to the song and we'll add it to our huge playlist. I mean, these playlists are giant. Um, We take a few weeks to listen our way through them a few times and make sub playlists of our favorites and discuss them on our Summer Strut episode, which will probably be in July or August, depending on our vacation scheduling and how long we can listen to the list for. Again, send your catchy summary suggestions to culturefest at slate.com. They don't have to be songs about summer, just songs that give you that summer feeling, to quote Jonathan Richmond. Our second item of business this week is to tell you all about today's Slate Plus segment. This week, we're answering a listener question. Our listener named Talia wrote in to know, what is our relationship to our finished work? In other words, do you feel a big sense of accomplishment after you've completed something or just anxiety and regret about everything you could have done differently? Talia says this question was prompted by an experience she had with a big thesis project that she recently completed. Congratulations. We thought this was a great question, so we're going to ponder it in our Slate Plus segment at the end of the show. If you belong to Slate Plus, you'll hear that after the regular show. And if you don't, you can sign up at slate.com slash culture plus. In exchange for your membership, you get ad-free podcasts, you get bonus content like the segment I just described, and you get unlimited access to all of the wonderful writing on Slate. You'll never hit a paywall when you belong to Slate Plus, and you'll also be supporting us and the work of our wonderful colleagues. These memberships are what keeps Slate going, so please sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Once again, that's slate.com slash culture plus. All right, back to the show. What's it like to no longer be so young in a youth-obsessed culture to be besieged from within by all the counterfactuals and regrets of middle age? In Platonic, the new sitcom on Apple TV, Rose Byrne is Sylvia, an ex-lawyer and now mother of three, who reunites with her old buddy Will, played by Seth Rogen. He's a brewmaster, part owner of a pub, and a middle-aged man-boy. He's fun, he's juvenile, averse to conformity, blithe about money, and he re-enlivens her life. But their camaraderie begins to irritate some of their other intimates. 
In this clip, you'll hear the voices of Rogan and Byrne. They're a little bit drunk in this scene, and they're arguing about why their friendship initially ended. Let's uh, let's have a listen. I was in love, and I just wanted you to support me. That's all I wanted. I was just being honest because I love you, and you didn't want to hear it, so you ditched me. I didn't. I ditched you because it's hard to be friends with someone who you know hates your wife. Isn't honesty what you want from your closest friends? No, not when it's bad. And you didn't love Audrey, but you didn't hold that against him, did you? What's that about? It's different with men than it is with women. Men. Oh they, fuck. He's a little. They're more bullshit. mellow about that's this shit. Oh, that's yeah. ridiculous. And nope. it's fucking bullshit, and it's insulting. Sometimes the truth is insulting. Men are more mellow. That doesn't make any sense. Say. Yeah, men are really mellow. You know who starts wars? Men. You think George W. Bush was really fucking mellow when he invaded Iraq? Ever heard of Mary, Queen of Scots? Please tell me one thing about Mary, Queen of Scots. Bloody Mary. That's what they call her, and you don't get that name by being mellow. Margaret Thatcher, she was a fucking asshole. That Cara Delevingne, she seems like a fucking mess. Uh, all right, I'm going to start with Julia here. Uh, what'd you make of uh, these two and their show? Any excuse to see Rose Byrne as a comedian, I will take. Like, I wish that somehow her career had lined up with, like, I don't know, whichever heydays of Hollywood provided the best fodder for comedians. She's so fucking funny. I really enjoy her in comedic roles. I am not certain that I think this show is fully worthy of her efforts. Like it's a it's a good hang. It's it's pleasant. It's chaotic. It's fun. Sure. That's my that's my response. <laughs> Time and pleasantry. I don't know. It seemed fine. It seemed a little baggy and a little um shapeless to me. I am very curious, though, what Dana, our resident uh, completist of the show, thought. I think I'm much more fond of it than you, Julia. I mean, I agree. Rose Byrne is great in comedian roles. She also has great chemistry with Seth Rogen. She's already played his wife twice in the two Neighbors movies, directed by Nicholas Stoller, who co-created this series. And this is just kind of a hangout show, but I think it's a really good hangout show. In fact, I wrote an entire, I'm not usually a TV critic, but I wrote on this series for Slate because I wanted it to get some recognition amidst all the zillions of streaming comedies that are being dumped on us constantly. I think this one is actually worth finishing, if only because it remains pretty much in that hangout mode. You know, it doesn't become a rom-com, really. It has the structure of a rom-com in that it's about relationships and domestic comedy situations. But it really is a show that asks questions about friendship that I found, I don't know, maybe this this just happens to speak to my little world, but the idea of an old friend from your more intense party days of your youth coming into your middle-aged life, right, after you have a family or have a career or both, and are figuring out who what the second half of your life is going to be, is kind of identifiable. And I think watching these two mess up their lives together in a way that seemed at both kind of comedically ridiculous and sort of psychologically plausible was really a satisfying hang with a lot of good side characters too. And I don't know, it's not that often that I finish one of these streaming shows, to be honest. there's there It's a rare thing when we watch something for this podcast that I want to watch every single episode of the show. And I did with Platonic. Steve, what about you? Settle the tie. <sighs> Team Julia. I, so... I almost wanted to recuse myself because I think, as you all know, I my wrist was once touched tenderly by Rose Byrne, and I've never been the same 
since, but um, <laughs> anyway, I consulted a team of lawyers. We worked together. We drafted some paperwork, and I'm allowed to do this segment. And uh, I just think she's <laughs> a flawless creature. Um, one aspect of which is that she's an incredible comedic actress, Julia, exactly as you say. I'd love to have seen her in the 1930s alongside Claudette Colbert and um, why am I not thinking of who's the Rosalind Russell, but who's the other one from my man Godfrey, my favorite of all of them? Who is it? Carol Lombard. Yeah, Carol Lombard. Um, she's to me, she's in that class, right? I think. And what I, you know, it scarcely needs to be said, right? She has this and this is not at all a backhanded compliment. She has a China doll beauty to her and she plays against it. And that is her essence coming out, right? Her, She's telling you in most of what she's done as a comedian that that. Her essence isn't the China doll at all. It's this ferociously funny, uh, self-undermining, you know, ironic, you know, ironist in some way. And she's just captivating, right? She's delicious. I, I really do love love and admire her as an actress. Um, and she's doing what she can here. The problem is it's not a good hang. It has to be. In order for this to... It's, all it is is a hangout show. And you have to love being around them. And the f- crazy thing is they were quite good in Neighbors, um, these two leads. And actually, Dana, I don't feel their spark at all. I think... I have to tell you, this is chat GPT quality script writing here. To me, it's like... Okay, Chat GPT, give me a bar, you know, co-owned by a you know middle-aged man boy and a bunch of quirky coworkers and a nasty type A biz school wanker, you know, owns the largest share. Go, and out comes all of this very stale banter. Uh, I, it's no better than what the algorithm can do. I know this is just mean-spirited, but I wanted so badly to like it. And I watched three episodes. I had to give up. I could not watch another minute of it. Well, I mean, it's just, I, I thought it went to some unexpected places. If only because When Harry Met Sally is a reference that's dropped right at the very top, right? And there's this um, kind of question about the the structuring premise of When Harry Met Sally about male-female friendships across two, you know, two straight people. Can they hang out together without romantic interest developing? And I like that the show didn't go there, didn't problematize not going there, and regarded friendship itself and right. the, you know, the the... The jealousy that can be caused because, you know, your spouse gets really close to someone else as a friend. What happens with that? The I think a chat GPT <laughs> algorithm would have generated a very different husband character for Rose Byrne than the one that Luke McFarlane plays. He's excellent as her husband. And, you know, unlike the usual sort of mm-hmm. um, the stiff that a husband is in this kind of situation, right? You have to see, oh, this is why she's bored and this is why she wants to hang out with this other guy. No, as it turns out, he is this ridiculously handsome, kind, loving, affectionate partner who nonetheless doesn't provide her something that she needs from Seth Rogen. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm maybe I'm just happy with chat GPT problem, <laughs> but I found the dialogue funny. I found the characters endearing no. and and I liked hanging out with them for all those episodes. Yeah, I think it's I I, I would like to separate myself from the gentleman's <laughs> remarks. Like I had reservations. I'm not on like team excoriation mm. here. I mean, I think it's funny, but part of what you were saying, Steve, helped bring into relief my own view, which is that when we're hanging out with Rose and Seth Rogen, 
I was pretty happy. And there, there's a scene um, in the second episode where they check out the fixer upper that she's on the precipice of buying and, and, and it's terrible. And um, both of them made me laugh extensively in that scene. That's like a very, that is a very enjoyable hang. And that didn't feel, those are, it's a very specific type of bad house <laughs> that does not feel chat GPTE at all. Yeah. This house is gorgeous, yeah. unbelievable. Yeah. The butt trolls, the the all of this, the these uh, these details. What? This is 1926, obviously. 1986. That's what I was going to say. Close. It's got the 50-year cycle. So the you know. That whole scene is original and good, but there is there was something about the world, and you're right that that Luke McFarlane, who was the the hunk and bros, um, is great in this too, and and it's fun to think of the the future turns his career will take. Um, but the milieu seemed a little bit thin, I guess. Like the, the, I agree that sort of the bar seemed extremely on point. The like selected Mm -hmm. shots of LA seem very kind of, um, cardboard. This is the second LA mom show I've seen where the LA mom seems to walk the kid into the school in high heeled clogs and just, first of all, you're just not walking. And if you are somehow walking, you're not wearing high-heeled clogs. Like, high-heeled clogs is a thing you could wear for non-walking. Like, just, I don't know, just like little shit like that. Like, if it's supposed to be so, if she's supposed to be such a middle-aged schlump, why is she wearing cute number six store (laughs) clogs to drop off? And why'd she even get out of the fucking car? You just, you drive up and then people come get the kid out of the car. That's how Mm drop-off works. Like... I don't know. It just it just felt um, thin. I don't know. Felt a little thin. Like they seem so vi- yeah. vibrant and vivid against this world that feels a little thin. Can I? Or let me amend my. The gentleman would like to amend his remarks slightly. So I think this presents a a problem of what standard does one apply to peak TV shows, right? These two people are so freaking talented and interesting as performers, and they they've demonstrated they belong together. Why is this so not great, right? And it's I agree it's okay, but we're no longer hostage to the dial. We're no longer appointment viewers who are like a ZPM, and this is all that's on. You know, we live in a different world. You can swipe left so easily. So I guess I didn't hate it. I just was sort of, I'm shocked is too strong. I was surprised that like the only A game on display I thought was hers to be, to be just brutally honest. Well, Steve, I mean, I guess the corollary of you can always swipe away from everything is you can always swipe to something and maybe sometimes you can't explain why a certain thing lands with you and you just like it. I just thought this show had a good spirit. It's written by a married couple, Francesca Del Benco and Nick Stoller, mm-hmm. who've yeah. worked together before on things. And I just felt, while I, I could also poke holes in the world, and I agree the vision of parenting that we get is not, the kids aren't real characters. I say that in my review of it. Like, there are some holes you can poke in this, but there is something to me about that central couple that has a screwball chemistry. They remind me of an old-time screwball pair, Rogan and Byrne. Mm-hmm. They're funny together, and I, for one, stand up for platonic. Fair enough. I was too extreme. All right, platonic is on Apple TV. It has charms. Uh, they may... Uh, work upon you, they might not. Check it out and let us know. All right, let's move on. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. 
Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. In the Americas, The Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom is already Nintendo's fastest-selling game ever. I'm plagiarizing from uh, Luke (laughs) Winkie's piece on Slate about the game and the phenomenon of the game and the premise and conceptual armature of the game. We're delighted to be joined for the first time, I think, on this podcast by Mr. Winky. Hey, welcome to the program, Luke. Thanks, guys. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Uh, You paint this as someone who doesn't really play such games. Uh, you, This is an extraordinary explainer, though I think that's damning it with faint praise. It's like a really vividly drawn portrait of the game, and it's um, kind of enveloping an extensive world. But also you, you say that it is in some sense a covert or maybe not so covert defense of a free press, which I was, that made me really wake up and and pay a lot of attention. But talk first a little bit about the game for those of our audience who may not have played it or interacted with it, just what it's like to be in that world and play the game. And then maybe describe why it's such a huge hit, It's a, it, which it is, correct, right? It's yeah, like a big, absolutely. Big, big, big deal, yeah. Zelda kind of has a weirdly, like, esteemed... I'm, I'm trying to think of, like, a parallel in, like, you know, the non-video game realm for it. I, the one thing I could come up with would be something like James Bond or 007, mm. where... Um, you know, Nintendo has been making Zelda games since the 80s. Uh, when they come around, it's kind of like a cultural event in that scene. You know, it's it's a big right. deal. And there's not like an emphasis so much on continuity as it is about like the same kind of motifs that kind of pop back up that, you know, um, you know, when you walk into a 007 movie, the uh, the big bad might be a little bit different or the specifics might be a little bit different, but you, you kind of know what you're getting into. Um, but then, yeah, over the last couple of years nintendo has really kind of changed its formula with those games pretty dramatically and i think the best way to describe to someone that doesn't play games basically they created a big open world that you can explore but in other games like that you get the sense that you're kind of walking through a lot of stuff that's been kind of copied and pasted or like a a formulaic kind of way of kind of building that world of running into kind of the same kind of challenges or Mm -hmm. side quests um and these last two zelda games tears of the kingdom being the sequel to another one that was like this um the entire world is a really really bespoke you're always running into content that feels truly authored and intentional and the only way you can really do that is by spending a whole lot of time making that world there's no kind of shortcuts of doing that it's kind of like uh kind of like watching like a a Disney movie from like the 40s or something where, you know, every frame is kind of hand-drawn. And I think that is kind Mm. of the main reason these two games have been such a big hit is that it it really feels like you are uh, 
you are exploring something that feels really kind of intentional, I guess is the best way I can describe so it. So super specific, but also vast. That's exactly, what's so yeah. interesting is a hundred, right. you say it's 198 miles wide. It's nearly twice the size of Massachusetts. <laughs> like is. roughly how long, if you wanted to like explore it, you're talking a major commitment of time. Oh yeah. Like the, attention. Um, yeah. not to get too in the weeds here, but there's a, a thing in the video game community called speed running where people <laughs> try to beat a video game as fast as possible yeah. with different kind of like categories. Um, and I'm pretty sure the, I, I haven't looked at the records of the new game, but in the last game, the 100% run, which is to do anything, everything in the game as fast as possible would still take you like 50 hours or something like that. Amazing. Even if you have it super optimized. So yeah, a lot of stuff to chew on if, uh, if you want to chew on it. All right, Luke. Well, my, my 10 year olds are avidly playing this game, but, um, Tell us a little bit about, of that 50-hour speed run, what chunk of it would involve this interesting, positive portrayal of journalism, which I think is the, the, the intriguing point of your piece is like, hey, here's a piece of culture that's representing journalists as, you know, non-monsters and journalism as a worthy endeavor, which is sort of unusual in pop culture generally and definitely unusual within gaming culture and possibly even at odds with aspects of nintendo's culture so um like is this a is this a little bow on a lamp in a corner of one of the massachusettts or is this you know (laughs) how how fundamental is this to the to the world so it's not like the main quest it's not like you show up and to beat the game you need to do good journalism it's not that you know you're still (laughs) but it's a pretty significant uh it's a pretty significant side quest you do uh which is like jargon for just like something that's not like necessary to beat the game uh you bump into this character named Penn, who is an anthropomorphic, like pelican guy. I believe he's a he's a Rito in Zelda lore, and he's uh, he started a paper. I believe the paper's called the Lucky Clover Gazette. I could have that a little bit wrong. Um, and uh, he is uh, he's kind of working on the fringes to uh, to do journalism about where uh, Princess Zelda uh, might have ended up as she disappeared. To do some kind of gumshoe reporting about that, and he. Uh, recruits Zelda, and it's a pretty it's a it's a significant side quest in the game. I think there's like ten or eleven or twelve missions, just about kind of like quote unquote doing journalism. Uh, to be clear, our main character Link is not going and reporting and then going home and and banging out a story on his uh, on his laptop. Unfortunately, it's not quite it's not quite that immersive. But yeah, no, it is like and they they've done the work to really kind of color the world with this paper. You're running into people that are reading the paper and talking about like. Uh, talking about journalism in a really wholesome way, just about, you know, um, just people being like, wow, I learned so much about world events just by opening myself <laughs> up to the written word. Um, so it's very it's very sweet and very cute. So yeah, no, a, a bigger part of the game than you might think. It's not like a throwaway thing. Interesting. It, how unusual is that? I mean, I, I think we all have a sense of how unusual it is in pop culture broadly, which is, you know, I think pop culture probably more sympathetic to journalism than like the culture of existing in America today. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how unusual is this in game in sort of game culture though? You know, there's definitely other journalists that have popped up in video games, but most of the time I feel like uh, it's kind of like the sort of film noir stereotype of, you know, like almost like a private detective journalist kind of guy spilling some bourbon or ashing a cigarette or, or digging into some stuff, uh, maybe, maybe maybe crossing some ethical lines. Um, in in this Zelda game, it's portrayed so 
just so wholesomely. Like it's a very J school interpretation of uh, <laughs> of what journalism is. It's very very bright eyed. And I think that that is a thing that maybe want to write about it is uh you know I mean it's rare you come across like a video game that is just so like steadfast about its belief in like the baseline ideal what journalism should be. And also um, I will say though that uh, all the different haunts for where this paper is being written it's all in these like converted horse stables. So you do get the sense that maybe economically journalism might still be tough uh, <laughs> in, in the land of Hyrule. If they're working out of, you know, like a place where horses used to live, but you know, they're, they're still, they're still getting by. Although you do see Link, the protagonist, the mute protagonist of the game being paid all the time. I was jealous <laughs> of his, his rate of journalistic pay. He's constantly getting violet rupees and golden horses and various layers of armor, etc. Um, I had one question about the vision of power in this universe. I haven't actually played the game because I don't have a Nintendo, nor was I going to lay out the 70 bucks that it costs. But I watched a bunch of Twitch streams and sort of, you know, gameplay how-tos. And it seemed like the, the power of Princess Zelda, who I realize is this, you know, venerated figure in the video game world, is never questioned. And so the power that these journalists would be speaking truth to just seems to be this this uh, unproblematic royalty. There's even a moment when Link is talking to one of his potential sources, I think, about going on a clue quest of some kind. And this person says, well, I wouldn't want to say anything that would make Princess Zelda mad at me. Like they're actually aware of, you know, the, the, the princessly eye looking down upon them. And uh, maybe it's a lot to ask of this game that it would have a, a vision of the possibility of the corruption of power. But I just had a question about that. I mean, about this and maybe in sort of, you know, vaguely medievalist video games as a whole, is there very much questioning of the monarchical power structure that holds it together? Or is Princess Zelda just all good all the time? Absolutely not in Zelda. There is no Princess Zelda is the is the the paragon of all goodness in the world. Uh, Nintendo, I think, is there's been plenty of video games, video game companies that have tried to delve into, you know, at least trying to engage with politics, something like that. Nintendo has never come anywhere close to that. I wouldn't call Tears of the Kingdom a political game necessarily in that sense. I, I don't think, like, Link's scoops are not, like, uh, you know, he's not, like, digging through the uh, the royal archive to see all the cover-ups that the the Zelda hegemony is, has um, unleashed upon the world, unfortunately. Um, maybe they'll save that for the sequel, but, yeah, that's just not really... Uh, that's not really in Nintendo's MO. Um, I, I feel like as a company, they still have this idea that they're mostly making video games for like nine and 10 year olds. And maybe someday in the future, we'll be, we'll be really getting into the bottom of what's going on here, but, but definitely, definitely not. In this Rip game. the tiara off yeah. Chris's Zelda's head. <laughs> yeah. So it's like speak truth to power, which is largely beneficent. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Got it. Luke, reading your piece, I learned that this, uh, there may be an element of atonement here in including a little free press parable or whatever at the right. center or at the near somewhat near the center of their of their game. Talk a little bit about Nintendo's relationship to journalists, especially on the web. Yeah, and it's not you know this is a problem with Nintendo. It's a problem with a lot of um, kind of major video game publishers um, that certain people that cover the industry for certain websites specifically certain publications that cover the business could fall under like a blacklist where all of a sudden when it comes to getting review copies of a game when it comes to getting invited to preview events just like you know the tools we all use to cover games uh, all of a sudden that's kind of taken away from sites um you know i specifically you'd probably have to ask them exactly 
why they did so, but around the business, around people that cover the games, it's usually if, you know, someone someone breaks a story about an unannounced product or they dive into, you know, an investigation of labor practices or things like that. And then, you know, without being told so, all of a sudden they're no longer kind of in the loop. And Nintendo's been guilty of that, specifically with a website called Kotaku um, that uh, they did not have coverage of uh, Tears of the Kingdom and everyone else did because they were under that blacklist. Um, mm. And that is... Uh, so yeah, uh, I, as, I, as I say in the piece, maybe the most relatable thing about Link's journey in journalism is that he has to uh, kind of deal with the contradictions of working under the thumb of a of a large corporation while, <laughs> while maintaining his ideals. Um, so yeah, uh, if if you want to put the screws to Nintendo, they are not necessarily living by their word, unfortunately. Luke, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about kind of cultural criticism of games and how we cover games mm-hmm. for a popular audience. I mean, we we do some of it at the LA Times. We have a games critic and a game industry reporter, but the world to cover is so vast and the amount of audience attention is so massive and really dwarfs, you know, a lot of the forms of media that get get a ton of attention. Yeah, I mean, this is a pretty frequent topic conversation among people that cover the business, especially lately. Um, we're living through a pretty rough time for games media in general, there's been a lot of layoffs, a lot of sites that have just been killed, a lot of a lot of good video game reporters that have kind of found themselves out of work. Most famously, the Washington Post uh, got rid of their uh, vertical called Launcher that was covering games uh, a couple of months ago. Um, and it's a weird contradiction, you know. Uh, you could make the argument that video games, as far as understanding the world or culture or what people are doing, is one of the most important stories yeah. happening right now. And uh, yeah, it does not seem, um, especially for, you know, more kind of established kind of media entities, it's not seem that they're willing to really kind of put up the money to to cover the industry in the way it deserves, because there's so many stories out there, um, you know, waiting to be told uh, that have not been kind of been given the bandwidth or given the treatments or, or given the resources to do so. Um, and it's something I would like to see change, yeah, uh, for sure. Here, here, I mean, because, you know, to the extent that cultural critics and critics are kind of the remnant superego of a culture that doesn't really want to hear from them, and video game players, to paint with a very broad brush, <laughs> might be the id right. to have a society in which the superego and the id are not an ongoing dialogue with one another. But it's not a healthy thing. That's where you come in. Luke, that we, this is uh, why your task is so important. Anyways, really awesome to have you on and and, and really talk us through this phenomenon. It was a terrific of segment. Course. It was yeah. great to be here. Thanks, guys. Thanks. All right. Now is the moment in the podcast when we endorse Dana. What, uh, what do you have? Steve, I'm going to endorse something I came across in the Paris Review this week. I think this is very, very up Julius Alley as a fellow fan of fashion and fashion history. It is a, I believe, an excerpt from an upcoming book, or at the very least, a um, a piece based on the material from an upcoming book. The title of the book is The Dress Diary, Secrets from a Victorian Woman's Wardrobe. It's by Dr. Kate Strasden, who's a fashion historian that I, I follow on Twitter. It was maybe through her that I ended up on this Paris Review site, and The story behind The Dress Diary is that Kate Strasden, this fashion historian, came across a book. I think she was given it as a gift, a a, a personal book like a sort of binder that had belonged to an unknown woman in the 19th century. The date in it that it begins is 1838. 
And she had to do some sleuthing to figure out who this woman was, eventually figured out that her name was Anne Sykes. And she kept a diary about her clothes and other people's clothes that includes swatches of fabric from the things that she wore or the things that she planned to sew or things that other people wore. And she wrote about them and about the events they had been worn to. And this piece in the Paris Review reduplicates some of the pages from this diary and it's just such a beautiful object of design with her 19th century handwriting and her fabric swatches uh, and apparently it is you know part of a, a, a tradition of keeping clothing diaries of this kind but this is a particularly um, long-running and detailed one that really gives you a lot of glimpses into just Victorian culture and the clothes people wore and the things that they did in those clothes. It looks fantastic. Just based on this this excerpt in the Paris Review, I've pre-ordered the book, which is coming out this year in the U.S. I think it's already out in Britain. Anyway, I to just take a peek at the Paris Review piece about Anne Sykes' dress diary, and I would be very surprised, Julia, if you would not be interested in reading more. Oh my God, I feel like ChatGPT conjured that out of my own brain as a thing I'm most likely to be interested in. (laughs) Completely, yes. I thought of you immediately. It's so you. But anybody out there who likes textiles, who likes, you know, history and books and handwriting and binding of things, it's just, it it scratches all those itches. Amazing. Um, Julia, what about you? Well, first I would just like to crow. Let the record show that we have at this point received four emails from people four? thanking me it's, it's for more my... Like, it's six or eight, isn't it? It's not four. Well, I assume that each email represents between 12 <laughs> and 400 individuals whose lives were changed by my heroic bravery in being willing to admit that at one recent point, I didn't know you could freeze sliced crusty bread, but now I do, and I wanted to share that glory with the world. So between four and 1,800 people are, are transformed by this podcast, thanks to me and my courage. Um, so... So let's see. Okay, now that I'm done with that, what did I like this week? I don't even know. <laughs> um, you know, Julia, I just wasn't it that you could also freeze water in cube-like shapes and use them to cool drinks and keep them cold? Fuck you, Metcalf. <laughs> Although I did actually just see something on Instagram for an ice cube tray that will make like little little ball ices that seemed good. <laughs> but anyway, not buying that. Um, I, as our listeners know, love and listen to the Script Notes podcast. And a couple of weeks ago, John August, the esteemed, the august, uh, recommended a iPhone game called Hold Down, H-O-L-E-D-O-W-N, which is sort of like Asteroid, but bit down instead of up um anyway very nice gameplay good little addictive uh kind of mindless puzzle game that uh he recommended and now i recommend to you ah very cool um so i'm dana also i'm uh, a paris review uh, endorser this week uh, co- totally coincidentally so i mean it's, as a way in let me just say i think it's this it probably eternally open question but it's never been more open what literary criticism is going to look like in the age of digital media and also by the way i mean also just kind of the automatic transfer of the literary canon as i knew it growing up to a new generation like that's over right english class is no longer automatically devoted to shakespeare keats on and on and on and so for every interesting critic there's an answer to the question of what 
good, interesting literary criticism is going to look like. But I saw what I thought was an exemplary specimen, I thought, on the Paris Review website this just this morning. It's called Trespassing on Edith Wharton. And I'm embarrassed to say I didn't know who Alyssa Bennett is. Um, she co-hosts a podcast with Lena Dunham as a I turns out, shame on me, a very well-known essayist and writer. Um, it's just a direction criticism has gone in is including first person in autobiography, folding criticism into uh, autofiction, on and on and on. This is a very short, fully beautifully realized example of some of that. I mean, essentially, the author talks about her relationship to Rhode Island, specifically to Newport, where she grew up not rich, uh, around which she grew up not rich, and her her relationship specifically to Edith Wharton in the aftermath of an excruciating um, marital breakup. And she turns to Wharton as the one who, lay, quote, lays bare the punitive cruelties of a leisure class as expert at collecting things as it was at discarding people. And, you know, the Gilded Age was very real and very present to this writer as someone who grew up around those mansions. And the expectation upon the part of every stranger she meets who finds out she's from Newport that she must be rich. And it goes into her then visiting the Mount, where we did a live show a number of years ago, Edith Wharton's estate in Lenox, Massachusetts, and the excruciating circumstances around Wharton acquiring it, being trapped within it in an unhappy marriage there and escaping from it, all done in, I mean, if eyeballing it, it's certainly well under, I think, 3,000 words. It could be 2,000 words. It, it is just, it it is very, very, very worth seeking out. Um, and if you've never read Wharton, please, my God, run immediately to, you know, Age of Innocence, House of Mirth. They're masterpieces, I think. Trespassing on Edith Wharton. It's uh, on the Paris Review website by Alyssa Bennett. Check it out. Thank you, Julia. Thank you. Dana, thank you so much. It's fun, Steve. Yeah, really fun. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, that's slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Our introductory music is by uh, the composer Nicholas Bretel. Our production assistant is Kat Hong. Our producer is Cameron Drews. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon.